than just under house arrest and not chained, but most likely he would have been chained. So everything he's saying, everything he is doing is being watched by those guards. And many of those guards become Christians and start become followers of the Lord because they watched what Paul was doing. Well, why is this? Well, Paul was a prisoner in Caesarea. He was on trial, and he appealed to Caesar as, you know, as a right of a Roman citizen. He had the highest level of, of, um, of Roman citizenship, and, and so he could get an audience with Caesar himself. This would be like us going, well, you know, I want an audience in front of the Supreme Court, and that's my right. And it may take years to get there, but we may be able to personally go before the Supreme Court and meet with them. This is the same kind of thing where he can go and actually talk to Caesar. The fine print is there's no set time schedule for this. It's on Caesar's whim on when he wants to meet with people who appeal to him. So Paul is just not languishing in, in jail. He, he uses his time wisely. And we need to understand this. He writes letters. He's building up the church, not only in Rome, but, but around the, the world. But the church in Rome is a fascinating church because Roman slaves, you know, all the way to, to people in Nero's household. This church was a, a very diverse church that, that, that met here. So Paul is showing us that it's worth, you know, it's worth to gather as a team together. Paul is imitating Jesus as, as Jesus gathered his disciples and developed those disciples and those friendships, uh, and, and Jesus built a team. A team is what we need to think of in our area of, of our mission field. You know that 95% of your neighbors today are not in church anywhere. 95% of them. As you drove out of your neighborhood, most people were, well, they wouldn't be getting up this morning to mow the lawn, but I've seen that a lot in my neighborhood on a Sunday morning. A lot of them are going out to breakfast. I joked around. I, I almost called Joshua and said, hey, there's too much fog. I couldn't find the church. We went to IHOP instead. Figured that wouldn't work. But we have a great mission field that we live in. We have a great place just between our neighbors and our neighborhood. So Paul tells these guys in verse 2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a, open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul is, in the end, is he, he's kind of preparing himself. He wants to be ready for, for when the time comes when he, you know, he gets one shot at going before Caesar. It's not like he's going to have multiple conversations. He gets one shot when he goes there. And this is a great reminder for us that sometimes we only get one shot at talking to people about Christ. And we need to have people praying for us. We need to have people, uh, you know, preparing us. That's why Bible study is good. Developing those, those relationships is good. Answering those questions to one another. Well, who is God? Why would God allow war? Why would God allow this? Why would God allow that? That's kind of what some of the things that we've been covering on Wednesday night and, and we're going to be covering. Why would, so we can prepare ourselves to be able to answer the question when it comes. Because sometimes you only get one shot. That when God calls us, so we ought to be praying. We ought to be praying for others also. Paul is, has also prepared himself. He studied the Word of God. He's not going in blind. How often have we been asked a question that we did not know the answer to? You know, it's really cool. I'm starting to get the really basic questions from Brandon, you know. Five years old. Where does God live? 
Have you, are you ready to answer that question when somebody asks you that question? You know, for me, I have, I've done a little more studying so I can answer some of those things uh, a little more quickly, but some of us are kind of caught off guard. Where do we answer those questions? So we need to prepare ourselves where we're not tripping over our answers. Verse, uh, verse 5, it says, Be wise in, in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Oh, that we would be wise. Nothing is worse than a Christian making a fool of himself in this world. Nothing is worse. Because it not only looks bad on them, it looks bad on us, right? It looks bad on every church. Anytime somebody, you know, in the news media uh, or, or, you know, in the Christian community falls because, you know, they espouse themselves to be a Christian, they're out there, they're, they're pushing it, and then they have a major fall that, you know, everybody, what did they do? <laughs> typical. Uh, typical. I mean, you can't trust any of them. We have to be careful. We need to be wise in our actions because our, our actions have a direct effect on other people. We need to be wise in our attitudes because our attitudes affect those around us. We need to be wise in our speech, making the most of every opportunity that God gives us. As a father, I have to watch what I, what, you know, what I say around the kids because they listen and that's, you know, I've joked about this. I, I've, I've changed the way I talk about the other idiot drivers on the road, you know, because my son picks up on certain words like idiot. Dad, why did you call them an idiot? Well, because they are one. Okay, no, 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 no. I have to watch how I act and what I do because they watch. I have to watch my attitude because they pick up on the attitude. It's interesting to have another curious baby around because, I mean, Brandon was a very curious baby, and, and we've been blessed with, a, with another one here. Grayson's, you know, he's seven months old. He watches everything. He will sit on the floor and watch every ninja move that Brandon has. And I'm, you know, again, reminded, kids watch everything. Brandon will be in the back of the car playing on his iPad, which he thinks it's his iPad, and it's not, but he thinks it's his and Lisa and I will be talking in the front, and he'll go, what was that? Or he'll say, well, why did you say this? And he's playing his game. We think he's not paying attention. He is listening. People listen. They not, may not be like a child and say, well, why did you say that? But they listen. Let your conversation always be full of, of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know the, how to answer everyone. You know, salt is a very interesting material. It can be used in several different ways. First off, it can be used as a preservative. In fact, ancient times, they would, they would salt the meat. You would hear that, salt the meat. And they would salt it, and it would dry out a little bit, and it could stay for months that way, and they would still use it. How would you like to eat meat like that? Very different, isn't it? But that's how they preserved the meat. So our, you know, our conversation ought to preserve things. Ought to preserve it for the future. That is so grace-filled that people will come, you know, back again and again. But, you know, if it's harsh, if we have a hate-filled attitude, man, how will that preserve anything? Secondly, it can be used to season things. When I cook on the smoker, when I, I, I always say when I, go, when I go smoke, and people look at me really weird. And No, when I go you know, put meat on the smoker, it comes out really, really good. I, I love smoked meat, you know. Uh, but, but once it's cut up, you have to add a little salt to it. That makes the flavors just kind of pop. 
This is why they say if you got a dull salad, add a little salt to it. Not, not too much because over-salting can, uh, you know, make it go, ugh, you know, I don't like that. But we have to season our conversations with the grace of Jesus because it makes everything better. In fact, when we're full of Jesus, when we're in his word, when we're talking with him, his spirit is active and when the time comes, he will help us with the answers that people are looking for. That's what Paul has trained himself up to be. And this is how Paul kind of ends his letter. You know, before the, he goes, you know, before the final things, I want you to, to remember, I want you to be wise and I want you to be full of grace. So how do we get there? Well, we've been on that journey the past 21 sermons. Going through the book of Colossians has been about full, you know, being full of grace and, and being full of mercy. And, and, you know, the journey is how we get to that point. That's why we study the word the way we do. And then he has this final greeting. He says in verse 7, uh, Tychicus, and I always, you can say that word however you want to say it. That's how I say it. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is my dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you to ex- for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He comes with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has happened here. He's setting up these guys to understand and hear about the life that is what's going on with, with uh, uh, you know, all the Christians in Rome and Paul specifically, what Paul has been doing for the Lord. And, you know, Onesimus, is, he is traveling from Italy and he'll go across the, the, the Aegean Sea over there to, to Greece and, oh, you know, across another sea and he'll end up in Asia Minor, as they call it. And today we call it Turkey. Probably a, a two-month journey as he goes back. And now, Amesius, we know from a, you know, another book that, uh, that Paul wrote, another letter, a letter to Philemon, a letter to, to one man who lived near Colossae. And he was, you know, he was uh, happy with Philemon because he says, uh, because he's there and he says, you were there strengthening the saints. But there's another kind of issue with Onesimus. Uh, he was once a slave to Philemon. He once was, was owned to Philemon. You know, Philemon was a slave owner. So either Onesimus, Onesimus was outright owned or, uh, you know, he was bonded to him. In other words, paying off a debt. Maybe it was from, you know, his parents. Where his parents said, here, take my child to pay off my debt. Or maybe he was a, an adult that said, I will work for you for two years. I'll work for you for, for seven years to pay off my debt. So he was bonded to him. Very common then. But we don't know why Onesimus left Philemon. We just know that he did. And he got all the way to Rome somehow. And, you know, maybe Philemon even approved the trip. I, I don't kind of get that sense. But they were both Christians at this point. Maybe he ran away. Many of the Christians were, were actually tagged at the time. And the, and the tag, you know, different tags would say, hey, send him back if you find him. You know, or, or uh, hey, here's a reward if you find him. Or, hey, if you find this guy and he's not around me, just kill him. They were tagged in many different ways. It's kind of a, a demonic-inspired system. But we don't know why he was, he was a slave to Philemon. But we do know that he wasn't getting along with his master by the way Paul writes about him. In, in fact, in Rome, slavery was huge. At this time, Rome had about 2 million people in the capital area. How many of them would you guess were slaves? How about 1 million of them? Approximately 1 million 
So, I mean, just every other person there. In fact, the Senate at one point passed a law, you know, because, you know, got to keep these slaves under control. They should all wear the same colored clothing. So they all started wearing the same color clothing, and then the Roman Senate started freaking out, going, wow, these guys, you know, you know the whole idea of strength in numbers. They're starting to see how many of them are around. So no, no, no. So then they turn around and pass another law saying, no, 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 you cannot wear the same color clothing. Man, they're afraid of a slave revolt. So you can see how Christianity was born in this real evil time and spiritual battles going all over, you know, kind of much like today. We see this happening in our society, the spiritual batters, uh, battles. I mean, so now Onesimus, his name means useful. So Paul writes this letter and he says, To our fellow worker in church that meets in your house. And you can imagine the letter arriving to, a, you know, to, to Philemon and, and what they would do is they would gather the whole church and the whole church would come over and they would gather up and they would break open the letter and they would read it. And what does Paul have to say? He says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. You can go back, go back and, and read the letter. It's, it's one chapter. Uh, you can say, I read the whole book of Philemon today. You know, sound all spiritual and everything. But uh, you can could, you could imagine the letter there. And he writes, grace and peace, I pray for you, your love. You are so generous. And Philemon is probably sitting there going, wow, this is greeting. That's pretty cool. And then he says... Keep putting that to work. Your kindness has refreshed our hearts. This is really cool. Paul must really be impressed with him. And then he goes, now I have a favor to ask you. I'm not demanding it, but I'm asking you because we're brothers in the Lord. So I'm just going to ask. Show kindness to Onesimus. He became a believer and he is like a son to me. You see, Paul developed these relationships with these younger men, and they became like family. And we all, you know, we've talked about this before. For Paul to reach the the point in society, in the Jewish society that he was, he had to be married. So he was kicked out of his family or something, or maybe they were all killed. I don't know, but it was just Paul. He didn't have family anymore. The church became his family. And he would, he would act like, I mean, he would, in a sense, adopt these sons. And, and you know all my, most of you know my story about adoption. I'm not going to go back into it. But one of the really cool names of, you know, when we, we started looking for names for our little boy, and we were like, man, what should we name him? And all these different names. And you know, I like the name Boaz, and Lisa didn't. And, you know, so we settled on Grayson. And, and we were looking for, you know, we, we thought the biblical part of the name would have been the middle name, you know, Daniel like we did with Brandon, and Brandon's middle name is Josiah. So we were kind of going for that. And, and then later on, we found out the meaning of Grayson, the son of the steward. It's like God was saying, hey, you're just, you're just his steward right now. I'm giving him to you to take care of. You are to grow and to nurture him because he is my child as much as he is your child. And what a cool concept, and that's what Paul's talking about. In fact, with whole international, I mean, what a, what a way that that just brings it right in, that these, children's, these children around the world are God's children, and it's our responsibility to step up and help take care of them. For those that don't have fathers, for those that don't have mothers, we're to step in and help, not to replace, but to help the families out. It's important. It's really important. Grace and peace to you, he says. Show kindness to Onesimus. He became a believer and he's like a son to me, he says. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to kept him, but I wanted you to make the decision, not me. 
wow, this is pretty cool. He is not just a slave. See, Paul's saying, hey, he's a slave. I understand he still owes you. But he's not just a slave, but he's a brother in Christ now. So if you consider me a partner, if you consider me a friend, give him the same welcome you would give me. If he owns anything or owes anything, charge it to me. I will repay it. And I won't mention you owe me your very soul. (laughs) I love that. By the way, I won't mention this. You owe me your very soul. Why is that? Because you became to know Christ under my leadership, he's saying. Wow. Please do this for me in the Lord's name. By the way, all the other guys send a shout out to you. That's pretty much what, what the letter said. This would have been read to the whole church. and I could imagine uh, Philemon kind of going, man, do I feel boxed in or what? Thanks, Paul. But in a sense, Paul was right. The letter to the Colossae church uh, that we're finishing today, you know, Paul had just said in that letter in Colossians 3.11, he just said, here there, uh, you know, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but in Christ is all and is in all. Wow. Now, we don't know how Philemon reacted to this letter in Onesimus, but we do get a hint because several decades you know, after Paul dies, the next generation is what we call the early church fathers. And anytime you hear that you know, in church, well, the church fathers, we're talking about the generation after the disciples, okay? That's the early church fathers. Um, you know, all the disciples uh, have died off in this group of godly men, uh, you know, kind of rise up. And one of them was named Ignatius. And Ignatius writes a letter where he refers to the beloved bishop of Ephesus, a high-ranking official in the first and second century church. And guess who's, uh, guess what name the bishop is? Onesimus. Scholars believe it's the same guy. Now, we're not 100% sure but most, most of the scholars would say so. If that is true, in Christ, a man who was possibly a runaway slave, had you know, connected with Paul, gave his heart to Christ, became like a son to Paul, he gets some help, and he goes back to his former master, who is a Christian. And Paul helps him out by writing a letter, and this guy ends up being the bishop of Ephesus. This is an amazing thing. So if you look at your situation and you think it's bad, here's another example of people in the Bible. People like Joseph that gets thrown in the jail, like Moses who who was in the desert for 40 years, and like David who is running for his life, like Rebecca and Ruth who are on the outs, who are down. Lives don't look so great at one point, and yet they revere the God of this universe. And they become godly men and godly women in whatever situation their life is in. Why? Because God changed their lives. He changed. He altered their course. You know, if we could really get behind each other, our resources behind each other, our support behind each other, holding each other up in prayer and helping each other out, holding each other accountable, there's no telling what the Lord can do through us. There's no telling to the point, you know, later on that that the effort that we put into people, they'll be recognized when we're dead and gone. They'll be great men or women of God. How cool would that be? How cool would that be? You know, another thing, Paul 
sorts of gives, you know, sort of gives Philemon a choice, but not really. And the Lord is, is the same with us. The Lord gives us a, a choice to forgive others, right? But not really. He lets us feel like we have a choice of forgiveness, but he really isn't. With Brandon, sometimes he'll say, I don't want to wear those pants. And I'll say, okay, what do you want, this pair of pants or that pair of pants? Same pants. In fact, the same exact kind of pants. But somehow he gets to choose. Not really giving him a choice, but I'm giving him a choice. It's called parenting. The Lord parents us. Lord, I don't want to forgive that person. I refuse to give that person. The Lord is like, well, I agree with you, Alan. Now, are you going to show them forgiveness in this fashion or in this way? Which one is it, Alan? You see, forgiveness is not an option. An unforgiving Christian is is what we call an oxymoron. And I like the the moron part of that. So anyway, but but you know, an unforgiving Christian that, that's not right because you know because an unforgiving Christian is not a Christ follower. The Lord expects us to forgive, and this is one of the biggest problems within the church. This is what divides church. This is what divides families. This is what divides Christians. This is what just kills Christians: the lack of forgiveness. Because when you refuse to forgive, you get stuck in that place that you're in. And you don't grow. You don't. You stay right there. You don't move forward in your relationship with God. And it will affect, you know, others' lives as well. You know, I was talking to a husband of a woman a few years ago. And he said, I wish my wife would just get beyond this issue. had to do with, you know, forgiving somebody she used to work for in a situation and all that. And he said, because, because our life has been stuck in that situation for over five years now. Because of that situation, for five years they were stuck. And he was just like, I wish she would just get over it. You know, forgiveness doesn't mean you have to go and hang out with them every weekend, have a barbecue, okay? You can say, okay, I'm not a part of your life right now, but I can still forgive you. Because you're unchaining it from your life. Don't be robbed out of life through, through not forgiving someone. Because our God is a God of forgiveness. You serve a forgiving God. Therefore, you're compelled to forgive. You have a choice, but not really. Well, pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You really don't understand. Well, I could tell you stories of my own personal life and my wife's, you know, our lives together and stuff, of how we've been hurt over the years through different situations, you know, by people we cared about, people we had, you know, over for Christmas, people who, you know, we had in our home, people we vacationed with, you know, through the years. And, and I'm not trying to say, oh, poor me. I'm not, I'm not going, you know, not trying to say that. But I understand more than you think. It's not the point. We feel like we don't have it in us to forgive. And if you're relying on yourself, you don't. You don't. Forgiveness starts with the Holy Spirit. You have to give it to to God. You have to give it to the Holy Spirit to be able to forgive. You know, the Bible talks about this, this root of bitterness. And we all know what a root does, right? A root just, you know, grows deep in its heart. Have you ever tried to, to get a, a tree or a plant out of the ground? How hard is it to get that root? 
You know, some people think uh, bamboo, you know, they, oh, if I just chop it off, it won't come back. No, 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 no. You understand. It's a root-based system. It keeps growing. In fact, our, our neighbor was so mad at another neighbor because they put back boo, uh, bamboo in the back corner of their, their lot, and the shoots kept coming up in, in their yard. They got to the point where literally they dug a trench in the back of the yard and laid cement down, all the way down like a footing of something, to block the shoots from coming in because it keeps growing. And that is a root of bitterness. And it takes God to get that root out. Jesus was a gardener. He's referred to as a gardener. If you don't take care of the the root of bitterness, it affects your marriage. It affects your children. Our children are a product of the parents, right? For the most part. If we don't take care of things now, we might see our grown children later. Sometimes it's their own decisions that mess things up. So it's not always the parents' fault. So I'm not going there. We've talked about children in the past week. So you you know where my heart is. But sometimes we go, yeah, they got that one for me. You know what I'm saying? You start to see certain personalities and stuff, and you're like, yeah, that's just like me. It'll be interesting with an adopted child to find out what it's like, you know, since we're keeping connected to, to the, the actual, you know, biological parents and the grandparents to see, see what traits are from that side of the family and their relationships and what traits are, are from Lisa and I from, from the, you know, growing up under in our household and, and stuff. It'll be an interesting, uh, you know, experiment if you will, you know, use that word. But sometimes they get it from us. The Bible teaches from the beginning to the end, there is no place for unforgiveness. And you know what? one thing I've learned? You will never feel like forgiving them. You won't be like, oh, today's the day I want to forgive. No, you'll be like, today's the day that I don't want to forgive, but God's making me forgive. Not necessarily making, asking. He's showing you by example. Because the sin in our life, you know, with my sin and your sin, we should never step foot into heaven, right? Our God is such a holy God that he doesn't allow sin to be in his presence. Yet how can we get to his presence? Because Jesus died for our sins, so therefore God forgave us. So if you think that you can't forgive, use the example of Jesus Christ in your own life. Because your heart will tell, tell, tell you, don't, don't forgive them. Don't follow your heart on that one. Now, I'm going to move on from that, but some of you will stay right there because you're stuck thinking about forgiveness to the point where you would say, Pastor Allen, I wish I didn't even show up for church today because the Holy Spirit is, is you know, really messing with you on this one. Now you have to go out and forgive that person. Your actions will show your forgiveness. What will your actions be? You know, forgiveness is like pregnancy. You can't go halfway. You're never really halfway pregnant. You're either pregnant or not. Trust God on this one. Trust Him. Put some effort into it, and God will help you through it. Now it goes on in verse 10. He says, My fellow prisoner, and you can pronounce his name, sends you his greeting. It's something like Aristarchus, something like Aristarchus. Yeah, it always goes out of my head. But he's a guy who, who really has Paul's back. He's a faithful friend. 
And if you want to read more about him, check out Acts you know, 19, 29. Now, Paul causes a riot in Ephesus, and literally the crowd takes it out on Aristarchus. I mean, they, just, I mean, they, they beat him almost to death. They get Paul out of there, and Aristarchus is, you know, had to catch up later. And he was always with Paul. And in Acts 27, the apostle Paul is on a, on a ship. He's a prisoner going to Rome, and you know it's past the good season for selling, and, and Paul is in chains, and it's a bad weather, and Aristarchus buys his own ticket to go on the boat with Paul to be there for him. He's like, Paul needs me. Sure enough, the boat sinks, and who's in the storm with Paul? Aristarchus. Proverbs talks about a man like Aristarchus. He, it says, a real friend is born for times of adversity. You know who your friends are when you go through a, through a hard time. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends, his, sends you his greeting, as, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have reached instructions about, uh, received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, the reason why he puts this in there, because Mark is the guy that went out with Barnabas on his first missionary journey and you know, decides that, that this life is not good for him, that it's just too hard and he leaves Barnabas high and dry. I mean, he bells. And Paul doesn't like this. So on the next trip, Barnabas says, hey, I was thinking about taking my nephew Mark. And Paul just probably just rolls his eyes and goes, you got to be joking. You know, you, you mean the guy who bailed on us, right? No way. The, the, you know, and, and they end up in this huge argument. And their friendship is, is strained for many years until they get back together and, and, and forgiveness happens and they reconcile. And now Paul is in Rome and Mark is with them and, and Mark is awesome. He has nothing but great things to say about him. Mark just needed time to mature. And sometimes that is what we need. We need to give people second chances. We need to give young people more chances because sometimes, I mean, you know, in my strictness and, and, you know, black and white and stuff, you know, somebody messes up a couple times and you're just like, fine, I'm done with you. I wash my hands. I'm done. Mark is one of those guys that, that Paul was like, I'm done. I'm done with you. No, 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 no. No, you're not going again. But eventually he gets another chance. We need to give young people a chance to mature because some people are late bloomers and some people are, are not. You know what I'm saying? There's some people come in their own later in life. So Paul is, you know, is saying, hey, you know, give this guy a chance. In fact, if Paul hadn't given him another chance, we probably wouldn't have the book of Mark and therefore probably wouldn't have the book of Matthew because we think that Mark was actually written first and Matthew was kind of based off of a lot of things of Mark, almost like Matthew is reading through Mark going, hey, this is great, but I need to write this to the Jews. Let me, let me write my story and tell the Jews because Mark was, was to the Gentiles. And I think this also comes back to forgiveness, forgiveness to allow somebody a second chance in life. To even say to them, hey, you need to grow up a little bit. Colossians 4.11, it says, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. And this is not the same Jesus. Um, there are only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have, uh, they have proved comfort to me. Epaphras, uh, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. And I love this whole idea, this wrestling with prayer, constantly thinking about it. It's like the Holy Spirit keeps bringing it into your brain. And you keep thinking about it, and you pray over those people, those guys. 
It goes on and says that you may stand firm in, in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and, and, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greeting to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So here's a woman who has a church in her house. And again, we, I mean, I, I know I hit on this ever so often, but again, we have a woman in the first century that's hosting a church in her house. Unheard of. Unheard of. Luke says, uh, or Luke stays with Paul almost the entire time. Paul had some, some medical issues and Luke, uh, Luke uh, took care of him. You know, Paul was almost beaten to death like five different times that we know of, and I'm sure it happened more times than it was actually written down. You know, he'd been shipwrecked, and, and Luke was with him, you know, always. It's almost like Paul needed him, and Luke recognized that. And in ministry, I think it's important. There are other people that are needed in ministry, other than the, the, the head guy, the pastor, or the head missionary, or whatever, whatever ministry it is. And many people don't realize how much they're needed. Or maybe they do realize it, but they feel underappreciated. I can tell you, you know, we, where you serve is an important part of this church. Because this church could not operate without you serving in those ever areas. Don't ever feel like you are not needed. I mean, if you didn't do what you do, then who would? I can't do everything. As many skills as the Lord has given me, I can't. And the Lord wouldn't want me to do those anyway. Without the worship team, Sunday mornings wouldn't happen. Without the teaching of, of, you know, the, teaching of the kids, or, you know, the service would be a lot more rowdy. You know what I mean? be hard to pay attention. I'd have to wave at my son five, six times during the sermon. You know what I'm saying? The kids certainly wouldn't learn at, at this level. I mean, without the coffee, how would you guys stay awake? I mean, I'm just saying. Without the heart team, our church gatherings wouldn't be as effective. Relationships wouldn't have an opportunity to bloom within our church. Without those that are cleaning the bathrooms or mowing the lawns or taking care of our facilities, and I could go on and on and on, opening up our houses for, for Bible study. Mature, maturity, you know, that maturing process would not happen. You are needed because without it all, I wouldn't be able to stand up here and teach. And it's not about me. It's about preaching of the Word of God. For you to become, you know, come to, to be challenged by the Holy Spirit through, through His Word. To develop those godly relationships by talking with each other. Those relationships that are needed for when you're in time of, you know, a time of need. And Paul ends his letter like this. After this letter has been read to you, See, it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter uh, from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received from the Lord. And then something interesting happens. Paul, you know, uh, has someone writing for him. You know, he has a, a, a servant, a, a person, the, the, you know, a co-worker, whatever you want to call it, that, that works with him, that would dictate to him. Uh, Paul is, is not a man of, of great health, you know, he, I mean, with all the affirmities that he had. And he's always chained to, to someone. 
The Romans took that very serious. And, and Paul takes the quill that was used for writing, and he writes this last sentence. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The Colossians had never seen Paul. They had never met Paul. They didn't know that these chains never left Paul. I wonder if Paul ever got used to the chains, you know, the noise that the chain makes. Because it became a part of his life. Every time he moved on the bed at night, hear the the chains hitting together. Every time he sat down to, to write something, the chains would hit the desk or whatever he was writing on. And he says, remember my chains. In other words, I am doing this for the Lord, not myself. Because if I had my choice, I'd probably be sitting on a Hawaii beach. Okay, not a Hawaii beach, but I'd probably be sitting on a beach and not sitting there in chains. And he says, pray for me. And we're bringing the little ones back in here because I want them to hear about Holt International. I want them to hear about what Frank has to say because, you know, one of the great things about Paul and the way he ends almost every letter, he starts talking about all the ones that have helped him in ministry and many of those have become like sons and daughters to him. How, what a beautiful picture that that is. So why don't we pray and Frank is going to um, come up here and, and join us and speak. Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians. We thank you that, uh, for the church in Colossae. We thank you for people like Philemon that, that opened up their house to, to a church that, you know, to do your work. We pray that, uh, that through these 22 weeks that we've learned, that we've matured through this book, that we start to understand who Paul is in his heart. But more importantly, your heart, your heart for people your heart for, for the world, your heart for, for those who are in need, your heart for those that you love, Lord. In your great and wonderful name, amen. Amen.